Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. This morning, message is considerably different than what I would normally I'll preach a little bit of a kind of a housekeeping uh, item here that I want to talk to you about today related to uh, life groups. But let me just begin with this introduction, make a connection to the mission that we have been given by Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, 18, 19, and 20, passage of Scripture entitled The Great Commission really is boiled down to two words that God has given to His church that Jesus Christ has commanded us to be about. And those two words are this, make disciples. Make disciples for Jesus Christ. If you are saved, you have been commissioned with that calling to be a part of the making of disciples for the person of Jesus Christ. And in that great commission where Jesus tells us to go into all the world and make disciples, he says this, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. So the process of making disciples and fulfilling the great commission is to teach those who are saved to obey the things that Jesus has commanded. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look into the first church, into the early church, that first century, first church, as it scattered around the, expanded around the known world. And I want to bring this question to bear related to the first church. How is it, what specifically did they do in trying to be faithful to that great commission to make disciples, teaching followers of Jesus to obey everything that he had commanded. And I want to try to draw out one central kind of overarching truth about that and then toward the end to make an application of that to this church and what we are doing currently here at this church. Message is going to be divided into two parts. A macro part and a micro part. actually going to be in the opposite order. We're going to start with a micro. We're going to get down and look really closely at some verses specifically, at some unique words, some definitive words within those verses and what the Greek words are and the meaning in the Greek. Looking for an answer to that overall question related to making disciples that learn to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And then once we've taken that close look, we'll spend most of the time doing that, then I want us to get up and step back and kind of climb up on a hill and get at a distance and just take a quick look at a couple of the letters of the New Testament, kind of a 30,000-foot flyby, and see if there is a consistency in the overall picture related to what we saw looking down, looking in, looking close. So let's begin with the micro look. 
We're going to begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. We're going to be putting verses up on the screen, but I, I want you to get a Bible in your hands. If you don't have one, you'd like one. If you just raise your hand, we'll have one of the ushers bring them uh, to you so that you can have a Bible. And listen, if you don't have a Bible, keep it. We want you to have the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. It's going to be on page number 958 if you're using one of those Bibles that we've got here, ESV version. Here's what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. That's the word I want us to get down and look close at. You maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Focus on that word traditions. Now when we hear the word traditions, we primarily tend to think about uh, customs that are passed on generationally from family to family down through a family unit, they are usually helpful practices that um, are implemented so that a value or some values that that family holds kind of can be highlighted in an ongoing way down through the years, right? You'd, probably thinking about some Christmas traditions that you might have or Easter traditions or other times of the year. So that form of the word, the way that we use tradition, is really a broad um, usage. It really can refer to any kind of a man-made process or activity or practice that is developed in order to kind of promote a value, and that could be as wide and as broad as the creativity of the ones that are coming up with traditions. We have some traditions in our house that we participate in and we value them. But the way that Paul is using the word here is much more confined or refined than the way that we use it. The way that he uses it here, the Greek word is paradosis, paradosis, it means this. It's a noun, and the con- it means the content of traditional or ongoing passed-on instruction. The content, it means teaching, a specific set of teaching, or doctrines, a specific set of doctrines that are given by a respected authority. So Paul writes here that he commends the Corinthian believers because they are remembering to keep, to maintain these truths, these doctrines, this identifiable set of teachings that Paul and the other leaders had passed on or had delivered to them. Let's look at just kind of the overall idea then, and I'll show you a few more verses that use that word. What Paul is saying here to the Corinthian church is the church possesses a normative 
pattern or group of teachings or doctrines, and they're called here traditions, but remember what they mean is truth traditions. They mean this set of identifiable truths. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Letter written to the church of Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul writes, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, same word, paradosis, same word, meaning this content of identifiable teachings passed down by this respectable authority of the truth, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And here's how they came, either by spoken word or by our letter. By spoken word or by letter. They were spoken and passed on verbally as a set of teachings from an authority, or they were written down and passed on as a set of teachings by letter. Now just flip over a page to 2 Thessalonians 3, the next chapter, verse 6. We're going to hear the word again. Paul writes, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So here he's setting this set of teaching, this identifiable set of truths in kind of juxtaposition against another set of teaching that is different or against an idle approach to life. He says, keep away from them. Here's what you need to do. You need to be committed to this set of truth traditions, this paradosis that was delivered. So, first point, Paul said that the church had a set of identified teachings or doctrines given. Here's point number two. What is the way that this set of teachings or normative pattern was passed on? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 again. It's the first verse we looked at. We're going to look at it at least three times because... I want to show you another word here. 1 Corinthians 11.2 Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. That's the paradosis. That's the noun. Now he's going to give the verb form of the noun. Here's the verb form. Even as I delivered, paradidomi, paradidomi, the verb of the noun of that truth. He said, I took this set of teaching and here's what I did. Paul said, I delivered it. I gave it to you. I passed it down to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. Here's an example of this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, Paul wrote, 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. There's that verb again, I delivered. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And He continues. Jude also uses this word, Paradidomi, Jude 3. Turn over to Jude 3. It's one of the smallest letters in the New Testament. It's one chapter. Jude, verse 3, reads this way. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. Once and for all, me delivered to you, passed on to you. What does it mean, once and for all, delivered? Now, I think probably we understand that, but let me, just in case we're reading that wrong, let me make sure I tell you what it doesn't say, and then I'll tell you what it does say or mean. It doesn't mean... Once and for all doesn't mean the truth that was delivered one time and is never to be delivered again. Matter of fact, it's absolutely the opposite of that. The once and for all truth that was delivered once and for all means this. It means truth for all time. It means timeless truth. It means truth that is never to be changed once and for all. It means truth that's going to stand the test of time. It means this. I think maybe the, one of the best ways to say it is this. It means truths that must be shared as they have always been shared. Once and for all truths. Paul says, or Jude says here, there was a set of truths delivered at the first that's never supposed to change. It's always what is to be communicated down through the history and the generations of the church, though once and for all paradidomi, truth that was delivered. So, Paul says the church had a set of teachings, of truth traditions. Secondly, that they had been, those truth traditions had been passed on, that set of identifiable teachings had been passed on by Paul and other churches from other leaders. And that was truth that was once and for all truth. And then here's the third point. When a church received that once and for all set of teachings, what were they to do with them? Back to 1 Corinthians 11.2 again, and we'll look at another Greek word. 1 Corinthians 11.2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain, there's the word, maintain, The word here in the Greek 
is kateko. And here's what it means. To hold fast, to possess, to keep, to continue to believe in with an emphasis on doing what that truth says to do. So what were they to do with this set of teachings, this truth that they had that had been delivered to them, a truth that was once and for all they were to hold on to it. They were to maintain it. They were to do whatever they had to do to keep it and live it out. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.15 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Stand firm and hold to. There's the word, kateko again. Stand firm, hold to. Don't let go. Stay in them. Keep living them out. That's what Paul told Titus to do, Titus 2.1. He said, Titus, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Keep it. Keep teaching what? Sound doctrine. That truth that was delivered, that identifiable body of truth traditions that has been passed down to you. Keep teaching it. Here's what Paul told Titus that the elders were to do. Titus 1.9 The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. Kateko, to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So here's what we've got. We've looked at three things. We've looked at the fact that There was a set of teaching, a set of identifiable truths or truth traditions, sound doctrine that was given to the churches. And number two, that was handed down from authority. And the sequence was from Jesus to the apostles, to be given to the churches. And what were they to do with it? They were to faithfully hold on to it and live it out and faithfully and consistently keep passing it on because it's truth once and for all. Now what I want to do is I want to look at one more passage spend a little time looking at one passage that we can kind of sum up everything that's been said to this point, pulling it from two verses. It is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. Please, if you have your Bibles, I'd really appreciate it if you'd open there and look. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul wrote. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
What I want to do here is I want to look at one word we haven't looked at yet closely, and then I want to give you an overview of these two verses and pull out several bullet points here. The word there is in verse 2, for you know what instructions, that word instructions, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The Greek word here is paraangelia, and here's what it means, an announcement, a command, an instruction on what must be done. An announcement, a command, an instruction on what must be done. It's strict orders issued from an authority. Now, with all of those four different Greek words in view throughout those various verses, the nouns and the verbs, let me show you Several different bullet points kind of summing all of this up from this one passage. First of all, these are not going to necessarily come in order as the verses unfold, but I'm going to identify in the verses where they are. First one is this. There was a set of truths or teachings that had come through the Lord Jesus to Paul and to the apostles. And the quote is this, verse 2, through the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Look at it again. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That's where it originated. It came through Jesus to the apostles. Second bullet point. The Thessalonian believers had received from Paul those instructions. Verse 2. For you know what instructions, quote, we gave you. They had received from Paul, from the leaders, those instructions that had come from Jesus through Paul to them. Number three, what was the nature of those teachings? What was their purpose? What was their design or goal? Verse one, they were instructions on, quote, how they ought to walk and please God. You see the quote? That was the purpose. They were instructions identifying how the believers were to walk and to please God. Number four, the believers at Thessalonica had been faithful to obey and apply those teachings to their daily life. Paul commended them for it in verse one. Here's the quote, just as you are doing. I gave you these teachings to hold fast to and you're doing it. I'm commending you for that. Number five, Paul urged them to continue to hold fast, to obey. Verse one, here's the quote, to do so more and more. Keep holding fast. Keep obeying. Keep passing on that truth. And I don't want you to miss this point. Number six, because it's, really critical to the subject that we're talking about here. It's seen explicitly in verse 2. I'm going to read verse 2 again and explain it. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For you know what instructions we gave you. Here's the point. The believers in Thessalonica knew precisely 
what Paul was referring to when he talked about this set of instructions that he had given to them. He didn't have to delineate what those were. All he had to do was refer to them. And Paul said, I know what, that you know what I'm talking about when I refer to them. They are an identifiable set of teachings that the believers at Thessalonica would say, oh yeah, Paul, we know what you're talking about. I mean, you, you drilled those in. You made those really clear. We know what those are. And then one more truth. Unlike the other six, this one is not seen in, ex- in an explicit statement, but it is there just as directly when you understand a detail about this letter. Here's the detail. Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica is, this is not really up for argument or debate, it's across the board in the biblical scholarly world that this is probably the second letter that Paul wrote. First Galatians, and then shortly thereafter, Thessalonians. Written in about 52 A.D., So here's what that means. About 20 years, 19, 20 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and the explosion of the church, within two decades, there was an established set of of teachings, of doctrines, a normative pattern of truth that was used by the apostles to ground believers in the faith and build them up in the faith. It was a known set of truths so that it could just be mentioned and they would say, yes, I know what you're talking about. Yes, we were taught and indoctrinated into those truths, that normative pattern of teaching. So here is the summary paragraph related to everything that we've looked at. I'm going to just read it. I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to get it precise as I've got it written down here to kind of bring this all to a summary. Jesus had committed to his apostles a set of truths, a set of teachings, doctrines, He had lived a certain way and taught a certain way. And then the apostles, under the leading and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had passed on, had considered the teachings of Jesus and interpreted his life and had passed on this set of verbal instructions and written instructions through their writings that were to ground the believers in the faith and build the believers up in the faith. And this first church, receiving within two decades at least these recognizable set of teachings were to make them a standard normative practice to 
indoctrinate believers into these truths so that they would be deeply held and faithfully lived out and continually passed on once and for all time to all the subsequent generations. That's the micro look, getting down and looking close at about five different Greek words to show a pattern throughout the New Testament of this recognizable set of truth traditions that believers need to be grounded in and built up in in the faith. Now we're going to kind of get up and step back and kind of climb the mountain and get a kind of a bird's eye view and ask this question. Let me say this first of all before I ask the question. The way that the letters of the New Testament are written, almost without exception, they follow a pattern, a twofold pattern. And the pattern goes like this. If you've been here very long in Romans, you're just going to be like so old, you're going to say, okay, I've heard that about a hundred times. There is a doctrinal section, a set of theological truths about God, about Christ, about the Spirit, about what God has done. And then once those are laid in place, then there is a set of ethical teachings, a set of practical instructions on how then we are to live based upon what God has done and who He is. So Romans 1 to 11 is the theological, doctrinal teachings, and Romans 12 to 16 are the practical, ethical instructions on living based upon those teachings. You look at the letters in the New Testament, and there are many of them where you'll just do a quick reading and you say, oh, there's the transition right there. There it is right there. Some of the other ones are a little harder to see, but once you've seen it in the ones that are clear, then you're going to be able to pick that up. And so there's this twofold kind of divisions in the letters of the New Testament. And even if you look at the Gospels, right, they're different. They're historical accounts. But here's what you'll find in the Gospels, the four stories of Jesus. You'll find, I want you to see this same pattern. You actually guys get the benefit. I didn't tell this to the first church, after the first service, okay? But you guys are the special group this morning. So here's what you've got in the Gospels. You've got this narrative telling of the story of Jesus, the acts and the things that he did. And then you've got the teachings of Jesus. And what happens so often in the Gospels is that the teachings coincide with the actions that either happen right before or after the teaching. So it is the facts about Jesus that give way then to the ethical practical application of how then we should live. The story of Jesus, the truth about the historical accounts of Jesus, followed by the teaching on how we need to apply who He is to our lives. Then you come to the New Testament letters, 
and you've got the same kind of division. You've got theology. That's like the historical accounts. That's the truth about God and who He is and what He's done, like the narrative. And then you've got the the ethical, practical teachings that follow the doctrine, just like the teachings follow the actions of Jesus and what He did. So you have the same pattern in the Gospels as you've got in the letters. And then when you get to the ethical teachings, and here's the question I want to ask and answer, that if our micro look, where we looked down and looked close at some words and saw that this identifiable pattern in the New Testament of this identified set of truth traditions, if we take a step back and take a kind of a 30,000-foot view we should be able to look at the structure of the ethical teachings in the New Testament letters and say, okay, I can see some consistency there that goes beyond just circumstance or luck, that there seems to be some consistent teachings that we see pretty regular across the board in the letters of the New Testament. If there really is supposed to be this standardized normative pattern of truth communicated, we should see some framework of that in the letters, right? I mean, that would only make sense. Good way to check the mic. Look, so let's take a macro look. And what I'm going to do, there's been great men throughout history that have studied this and seen this and written about this. One of the famous men uh, of a recent generation was John Stott. Incredible, incredible theologian. Love to read material from John Stott. But he's identified, and many others would concur, that this is kind of the basis of the, the areas, the consistent areas of teaching that are seen in some pattern throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to give you seven different ones quickly. Number one is this. That at salvation, at, at salvation, at regeneration, there is to be an entire reorienting of life following that. That there is to be a brand new life that is lived in a way that's to be lived is the vices that used to be practiced when we were pagans, when we were unsaved. Those need to be put away and put off and put to death, set aside. And we need to reorient our life around a new way of living. Secondly, in addition to taking off those vices, we're to put on virtues. We're to put on the mind of Christ. As I'm saying these things, I know some of you that are versed in your New Testament, you're going to be hearing and remembering passages of Scripture that line up to this. We're to put on virtues things that we are to be growing in that are like Christ. Let me just give you a few of those. Things like gentleness and humility and generosity and hospitality and purity and sobriety and patience within difficulties and forgiveness when wronged and these virtues that are to be a part of the Christian life. So reorientation of life laying the vices aside, number two, putting on a set of virtues, number three, moves into the relational or social realm. And it kind of goes like this. First of all, the biological family unit. 
dad, mom, kids? How are they supposed to relate to one another? There's guidelines given in the letters of the New Testament. And let me just give you a, a few pointers here. Husbands, you're to sacrificially love your wives and spiritually lead your wives. That's the mandate. Can't shake it. Can't abdicate it. Going to be held responsible. Sacrificially love, spiritually lead. Wives, submit to and respect your husband's children. Obey your parents. Biological family relationships. Then it goes to a larger group of family, the church family, the spiritual family. Number four, and it talks about how we're to relate to one another, how we're to love one another, how we're to use our giftings within the body of Christ, everyone participating so that the body of Christ, the church is built up in love. Then it takes it, number five, to a a larger arena, how are believers to relate to unbelievers in the world. Here's what we're to do. We're to love them. We're to be generous with them. We're to be long-suffering with them. We're to be kind. We're to be peaceable as far as it is possible with us to live at peace. When we are reviled, we're supposed to receive it patiently. When we're mistreated, we're not to retaliate. Then it goes to another area of relationships. Number six, how are we to relate to civil authorities, to governmental authorities, our believers to respond to them? Here's some clues. Pay your taxes. Submit to willingly and obey. I know that's painful, isn't it? That's painful. But we're called to do that. We're going to get to that in Romans chapter 14 and maybe right about the time it's time for election, we're going to get there. And I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies, right? So those are the first six. Here's the last one. Often, in the letters as they end, they do something like this. Be alert. Be aware spiritually. Be watching. Be diligent. There's a battle going on. So it's kind of seven identifiable Areas of truth or doctrine that we can see fairly consistently. It's not always in that order, and there's certain certainly variety across the board, but it goes way beyond coincidence when you look at the letters. Let me give you at least one example, just a quick flyby, and one that we've been in a little bit, Romans, right? Here's what happens. First 11 chapters are the theology, the doctrine, the Chapters 12 through 16 are the practice, the ethics. And here's what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 12 starts like this. Brand new reorientation of life. Here's what you're to do. You're to be a living sacrifice to God. You're to sell all out. There's to be a complete reorientation of your life to be a life that is lived daily in worship. And you do that by putting to death the deeds of the body, not conforming to the pattern of the world. That was point number one. Here's point number two. There's a set of virtues that you're to put on. 
And verse 2 of Romans 12 says this, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, there's a set of truths that you need to learn from Christ and put on in your life the will of God that you need to know so that you can live it out, i.e. virtues, i.e. that look like Jesus. Number three, relationships. How are you to relate to the church? Well, you're to use your gifts. You're to find out what the giftings are that God has given you, and in love, you're to use them to build up the body of Christ. Romans 12, 3 to 8. Romans 12, 9, I think, to 13 or 14. Here's how, do you, how you're to relate in a general way to other believers. You're to love them with brotherly affection. You're to honor them and run to try to outdo in honoring them. Then what about relationship to unbelievers, to the world? Well, here's what you're to do. You're to be kind to them. When they persecute you, you're not to retaliate. Those that are your enemies, you're to feed them, you're to clothe them, you're to give them drink. Romans 13, chapter 13. How do you relate to believers that are weaker in the faith than you? It kind of jumps back to relating to believers, those that are not as mature. It tells you how to do it. Love them. Don't claim your freedom if it's going to cause them to stumble. Love them and be willing to say, I'm not going to exercise my freedom because I care too much about you. And then guess what it does in chapter 14 that I already mentioned. How are you to relate to civil authorities, government leaders? You're to pay your taxes. You're to submit. Here's when you're not to submit. If the Lord tells you to do something else, he's the higher authority. But if that happens and you are mistreated, and you experience great loss, loss of property, even loss of life, you're to bear it patiently. See, this consistent pattern, if you look at Ephesians, you're going to see the same thing. Chapter 4, live this brand new life, a reorientation of life. Put off vice and put on the new self. Chapter 5, let love be characterize all of your dealings with others. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Then chapter 6, be watchful, be alert. There's a spiritual battle, a real enemy. Be diligent. See, there's this pattern in so many of the letters you can see in one form or another this pattern. So, took a micro look, saw this identifiable, a pattern in the New Testament of an identifiable set of teachings, recognized truth traditions that were passed on in the early church that were to be once and for all. Then we look at the books and letters in general and we see a consistent pattern that goes way beyond coincidence in a set of teachings, a truth traditions that were passed on. And so what we have been doing for a period of time, a year or so here as elders, we've been looking at that. And staff pastors, we've been looking at this concept and trying to identify, get some materials that would help us to identify what those fundamental or primary foundational 
principles are that all believers are to be grounded in and built up in. And so we have selected uh, not to be the only thing that's right, but we found what we believe is a set of good materials to use for that. And one of the venues we believe that disciples are made is life groups. There are two main parts of our ministry here, our Sunday morning ministry and our life group ministry. And there are things that happen here in Sunday morning that doesn't happen anywhere else. There are things that happen in life groups and discipleship, the making of disciples that can't happen anywhere else. And so we believe it's vital to be a part of a life group. We encourage you to do that. Check with Pastor Dale. Call the office. There's a, back in the Welcome Center, there's a, there's a car that identifies the life groups that we've got. And if you're interested in leading a life group, call and talk to Pastor Dale, our pastor of life groups, and we'll get you trained and prepared to do that. We believe it's vital. And so what we've got, we've got a set of materials that we are asking our life group leaders as elders and pastors to use for a period of time walking their life groups through that will help ground everybody that is a part of that in these fundamental principles. So you get some of that on Sunday and you get that in a life group through community where you know one another and can practice the one another's of Scripture and can hold each other accountable to those truths. And so if maybe some of the life groups, I know that there's a few of them that have already started. Some of them are waiting for this message right here to introduce this to their life groups. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. Two things. And this set of teaching is not a it's not a six-week study. It's a period of time. It's a set of booklets to go through. It might take a year and a half or two years. And the life group is not life group leaders are not told they have to do it every week, but they can take breaks kind of through it and and kind of spurs it out with some other materials. But basically over a period of time we're going to be working together in our life groups going through this material of first principles or primary truth traditions. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Number one, get involved in a life group if you're not. Find a way. Find a group that fits with you. If not, uh, pursue leading and hosting so we can have more groups and offer them to everybody. And then number two is this. I want to do this for our leaders. You're in a life group and this is introduced, don't give the leaders a hard time for it, okay? They are being told and asked by the elders and the pastors to do this, that we are asking them in our attempt to be faithful to the teaching of the New Testament as best we can. It's not the only way. This is not a legalistic thing at all. It's just a way, a set of tools that we're trying to do our best to align ourselves to the teaching of the New Testament and the practice of the early church there under the apostles. And so be excited when they share it, right? Say, wow, I'm excited about that. I'm so glad you're doing that. What a great idea, right? Encourage them. You're supposed to encourage them. I just let me warn you, though, it's not like a lot of other um, life group or small group materials that the question is just like super easy and it's a one-word answer on a blank, right? It's not like that. You got to do some work. You have to do some reading ahead of time and some thinking and you come to the group and discuss what you're learning. That's the way it was in the early church. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to that. They were pouring through that truth and learning it. It's the truth, those 
truth traditions that help us to grow up into Christ and get grounded. So you need to be a part of growing in that. And so I'm encouraging you to encourage your leaders to be a part of a life group and pursue this making of disciples with us together. Would you please stand? God, I'm grateful, grateful for just your truth, grateful for what you do. Thank you that you've given us truth that is profitable for teaching, training, rebuking, correcting us in right ways, righteous ways. So I just want to commit this process to you, our lead life group leaders to you, and pray that you just just let this be a season of time in our church where there is a deep grounding in the faith and a building up in the faith to make us more like Christ for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.